Hi, I'm Jim Stevens from the Pet Behaviour Centre in Dublin. You're most welcome to this podcast from www.petsbehave.com, offering solutions to your pet problems. In this episode, we'll be looking at clicker training, Christmas hazards, cat hunting behaviour and how dogs stay warm. Plus, those little snippets of information you may have missed from all the news about cats and dogs in the world. There's a trick to that click. Clicker training is the art and science of using a condition reinforcer to train your dog, or in fact any animal. A condition reinforcer is initially a meaningless sound, a click, word or signal, which becomes significant to your dog because you teach him to associate it with something rewarding. The click is actually a secondary reinforcer, the primary ones being anything that motivates your dog to work such as food, toys, being in your company, having access to a special thing or place. In most cases, it's food, simply because this primary reinforcer, most dogs respond to, and you can control by adjusting their feeding times. So what do we use the clicker for? You use the clicker to communicate three important pieces of information to your dog. It pinpoints, or marks, the aspect of the behavior that you wish to reinforce. By using the sound of the clicker as an event marker, it highlights for your dog exactly what it is that you're working on. It may help you to think of it as a bit like taking an action photograph. When you press the shutter button, it catches that decisive moment. Secondly, it communicates to your dog what you've done right and that the fact that you'll be rewarded for what you were doing when the click happened. In other words, it predicts the availability of a food reward for that particular behaviour. It also marks the end of a behaviour. Following a click and a reward, you can start again and reinforce that behaviour that you're working for. It's a teaching tool. It's not a forever tool. Once your dog understands the task you are teaching, it can be faded out and a quiet verbal or physical signal given to take its place. It should never be used either as an attention-getting tool or a command in itself. Using it for these purposes will destroy its usefulness as a conditioned reinforcer. So what are the advantages over more traditional methods? Well, the clicker is faster and is potentially more accurate as a reinforcer than a spoken word or phrase. It's useful for marking a behaviour that your dog offers at a distance or even in another room. It can isolate a particular point in the sequence of behaviour that you want to work on It eliminates the problem of your dog having to pick out the essential information from a plethora of words and actions. As it's not voice dependent, it can be used by any member of your family and your dog will still respond. It's unemotional and mentally sensitive to the dog who cannot cope well with some human emotions and their associated changes in tone through voice, body posture, anxiety. This form of training is entirely positive and stress-free for both the dog and the owner. As we know, dogs don't really understand English or for that matter, any other spoken word. The clicker helps to identify exactly what the reward is coming for. It's unemotional, can be used at a distance and wrong responses are not punished, thereby ensuring that the relationship between you and your dog remains good and free from misunderstandings.
So you've got your clicker, got your food treats, got your dog, everything's ready to go. The first step is to associate the sound of the clicker with the food treat. So click, followed by a reward. Do this five, six, seven times. Many dogs learn within this short time that treats, rewards are going to come whenever he hears that sound. Others may need another 10 or 15. Right from the start, it's important to vary the length of time between the click and the arrival of the tick bit by one to five seconds. Your dog needs to understand that although the treat might not be immediately forthcoming when you've clicked the food, it does eventually follow. It's also important to avoid working with food in your hand or on your person as much as possible. Have the rewards away in the box nearby so that you have to go and get them, but they're quickly available. So what are the do's and don'ts of this clicker training? Well, let's start with the do's, the positives. Start the process with good quality food and a hungry dog. If he's just had a dinner, he's not going to be interested in working for any more food. Remember to vary the length of time between click and the arrival of the reward. Keep quiet and let the clicker do the talking for you. Stop any game once the dog is still interested. Don't wait until the dog is full. The rewards are there to reward the dog, not to fill it up. The don'ts. Don't point the clicker, it's not a remote control. If things are not going as you expected, take a break and try again later. Don't pet your dog during training. Your touch will distract him from what you're trying to teach. And please, don't panic or show concern if your dog appears to be afraid of the clicker. It can be very disconcerting, particularly for noise-sensitive dogs. Rather than that, put the clicker in your pocket and click from that or muffle the sound inside an oven glove. As soon as your dog is comfortable with the clicker, you can start to use it as a conditioned reinforcer. It's not necessary to wait until the dog shows some sign of recognising the significance of the clicker before using it for training. The teaching experience will show you that the timing of the click is very important. It should come as your dog is offering the behaviour, not after the behaviour has occurred. So as the dog is beginning to put its bottom on the ground is when you click, not when it's been sat there for 30 seconds. Another advantage of the clicker is you can reward offered behaviour, not that you're telling the dog to sit, but if you find the dog sitting or lying down, you can click and the dog goes, oh, what am I getting this reward for? Oh, I was sitting, wasn't I? Great. In actual fact, dogs don't think I am sitting. They're more aware of where their body position is. It's more like my bum's on the ground rather than I am sitting. You lure the dog into putting its bottom on the ground and click at that moment, throw the food away so you can make the dog stand up to go and get the food so you can again teach a sit. Remember the click also ends that round of training. The great thing about clicker training is that you can shape a behavior. Do you remember the childhood game of trying to find the hidden object and as you were walking towards it and searching hard for it, people would say, oh, you're getting warmer, you're getting warmer. Or if you were moving away from the object, it was, oh, you're getting colder. Clicker shaping is very similar. You're going to reward a behaviour as the animal starts to approximate better and better towards the finished desired behaviour. For example... You're trying to teach your dog to lie down by luring it with a piece of food in your hand. You put your hand close to the dog's nose and move your hand down. As his nose begins to follow your hand down, you click and reward. 
You keep repeating this process, continuing to click and treat a lowered head, but keep using Lord to encourage his head nearer to the ground. When the front legs bend at the elbows, you click and treat at that point. When a front foot moves forward, you click and treat at that point. When both front feet move forward, you click and reward that. When the elbows touch the ground, you click and reward that. When the dog is fully lowering to the ground, click and give the jackpot. A jackpot reward is a reinforcement that is larger than a small food treat. It may be a handful of treats. It could be something particularly rewarding like chicken, something out of the ordinary. Each step slightly changes the behaviour required from what your dog was rewarded for before. He's going to be motivated to earn that click and therefore the reward. Each step moves the behaviour nearer to the final position. Before developing a new behaviour, write down the progressions that you think you are likely to see on the way to your goal. This way you're not going to overreach and forget to reward something which is interim. Sometimes when clicker training, you'll get an inappropriate response offered by your dog during a process of trial and error. This is to be expected and is acceptable at this stage. You have two possible ways of dealing with this. In the early stages of training, the best response is to ignore the behaviour, turn away briefly, and then alternatively, you can use like a oops or mm, not good enough. What you're actually doing is tell the dog that that is the incorrect behaviour. The dog also needs a keep going marker. Something that said like, keep trying, on you go, because it hasn't quite reached what it is you're trying to reward. We'll return to training methods and schedules of reinforcement in later episodes. But until then, enjoy your training. Christmas is coming and we need to take time to think about those hazards that are around at Christmas and your pet's safety. Age, temperament and your dog's energy level all play a role in how much mischief he or she might get up to during the Christmas period. Even the most well-behaved canine can succumb to the temptation of a Christmas tree and its trimmings. Short of constant supervision, and who can do that during the festive season, your next best defence is to ensure the precautions are taken that will minimise or eliminate the risks. The first risk is Christmas trees. If you're taking a natural one, be careful about the pine needles. Don't let your dog chew or swallow them. They are not digestible and can be mildly toxic, depending upon your dog's size and how much is ingested. The fir tree oils can irritate your dog's mouth and stomach and cause the dog to vomit or drool excessively. Tree needles also can obstruct or puncture the gastrointestinal tract. The water that you use to keep your tree alive can poison your dog. Preservatives, pesticides, fertilisers and other agents such as aspirin are commonly added to tree water to keep the tree fresh. Treated water can be harmful to a thirsty dog, so use a covered tree water dish just to be safe. Be vigilant if you use an artificial tree, especially as it becomes more brittle with age. Small pieces of plastic or aluminium can break off and cause an intestinal blockage or mouth irritation if ingested by your dog. Prevention is key. If possible, put your Christmas tree in a room that can be closed off from the rest of the house. 
Another option is to install a baby gate in the doorway to prevent entry to the tree room. And when you're not at home or unable to supervise the dog, confine your dog to its crate or a separate room to keep it safe and out of mischief. Christmas plants can also cause dangers, mainly through poisoning. Mistletoe and holly are both poisonous, as are lilies, which are highly toxic to cats, and daffodil bulbs, which, although you might get them as a present, are also highly toxic to both cats and dogs. The sap of Ponsettias is considered to be mildly toxic and will probably cause nausea or vomiting, but not death. It's better to err on the side of caution, though, and keep pets away from this particular plant. Another Christmas danger is alcohol. That stray drink put down by a guest can be very harmful to dogs. Depending on the size of your dog, even small amounts of alcohol, including beer, can be fatal. Signs of alcohol poisoning include an alcohol smell on the breath, neurological depression, hypothermia, i.e. low body temperatures, hypotension, which is low blood pressure, seizures and respiratory failure. Therefore, keep a watchful eye on those drinks on the floor and keep buddy from the bud. Fatty foods can be dangerous to dogs, causing pancreatitis, which can be life-threatening and expensive to treat. So keep the leftovers to a minimum as treats and remind guests and family not to be giving those cocktail sausages to the dog. Again, keep a watchful eye on stray plates on floors or low tables from which your dog may snack. Now's the time to make note of when your vet is open and closed over the holiday period and what emergency cover is available should the need arise. With sensible precautions, you won't need to be using the vet and can safely enjoy the festive season whilst keeping your pets safe. In the news. A real-life Florida Superman rescues his dog from alligator. All without dropping his cigar. Richard Wilbanks, 74, a true life crocodile Dundee, was walking his Cavalier King Charles Spaniel, Gunner, around the pond near his retirement home in Florida, when the alligator suddenly raced up from the water and grabbed the dog. Cameras set up by the Florida Wildlife Federation caught it all on film, then went home and superglued his wounds back together. The US President-elect, Joe Biden, has suffered hairline fractures in his foot while playing with his dog. Airlines will no longer be required to accommodate travellers who want to fly with their emotional support animals such as pigs, rabbits, turkeys, under a final rule announced by the US Department of Transportation. The new rule now defines a service animal to be a dog that is, quote, individually trained to do work or perform tasks for the benefit of a person with a disability and limits the number of service animals a person can travel with to two. It also requires airlines to treat psychiatric service animals as they would other service animals. Emotional support animals aren't considered service animals under the new rule, which drew more than 15,000 public comments before it was finalised. However, no training is required for emotional support animals, which has led to some questioning their legitimacy. Several biting incidents have occurred between emotional support dogs on flights. And in one recent case, an American Airlines flight attendant received five stitches after she was bitten by an emotional support dog on a flight out of Dallas-Fort Worth. 
Industry trade groups Airlines for America estimated the number of emotional support animals travelling aboard commercial flights increased from 481,000 in 2016 to 751,000 in 2017. Britain's dog owners are set to spend £162 million sterling on their canine companions this Christmas as a thank you for their support this year. A survey of 2,000 dog owners found almost three quarters will be treating their animals during the festive season, spending an average of 21.92 per pet. With an estimated 10 million dogs in the UK, that means 7.7 million will receive presents such as treats, soft toys, bones and chews. Of the survey of 2,000, almost half of owners will be making the dog a special Christmas dinner. The survey revealed 15% of dog owners even plan to spend more on their pooch than their parents, while 13% that the dogs will have more spent on them than children. And 16% admitted they would rather spend Christmas with their dogs than their family. Dogs UK also found that one in five will be buying the Canyon Companion a Christmas card and almost 60% will sign their dog's name in cards they are planning to send out to others. They truly are part of the family. Queen Elizabeth II has lost her Dachshund Corgi cross, which died a few weeks ago in Windsor Castle. The Queen has owned over 30 corgis since her reign began, and all have been descendants of the first dog she was given when she was 18 years of age. The last remaining dog for the 93-year-old monarch is a cross corgi Dachshund called Candy. Some pet lovers buy treats for their favourite animals, memorialise them with pictures and photographs. But the president of Turkmenistan has taken that a step further, unveiling a 19-foot-tall sculpture of a golden-coloured dog to honour his favourite breed, the Central Asian Shepherd. The monument, tail aloft and head held high, was erected on a pedestal at the centre of a traffic circle in the capital. The statue was unveiled in a ceremony complete with exuberant singers, and dancers and a wraparound television screen on the statue's base beaming out images of dogs. The hunting behaviour of cats. Cats are obligate carnivores which means that they cannot survive on a vegetarian diet and must consume meat as a source of taurine and other amino acids which, unlike dogs, they cannot manufacture. Cats normally catch small prey, which are around 1% of their body weight. Another study showed that almost 8% of prey caught weighed less than 50 grams. Another study showed that small mammals accounted for 52% of all kills, whilst birds accounted for a further 23%. However, the same study showed that overall success rate in terms of killing predatory targets was only around 13%. This shows that cats have a distinct preference for targets and are tolerant of a high failure rate. Cats will also hunt and consume insects. Evidence for the specific nutritional contribution of insects to the diet of cats is however limited. Insects, particularly spiders, however, are rich in taurine, as I said before, an essential amino acid for cats. Prey size, cats often have between 10 and 20 small meals per day. Since each meal is small and can only feed one cat, and given that hunting is itself a solitary pursuit, meal times do not really exist as a social activity for cats.
So do you think that hunger is a great motivator for cats to hunt? Hunger will change the predatory target in that a hungry cat will target larger and potentially more dangerous prey. And the speed of killing behaviour increases whilst play activity with the food decreases. Satiated cats, however, play with their food for longer. One study done in the 1970s, when such practices were allowed, found that a cat already eating a bowl of food would leave the food in order to kill a live rat introduced into the feeding area, drag the body back to near the food bowl and then continue to eat the provided food and not be interested in consuming the prey. It seems that various stimuli such as movement, odour and size of prey stimulate hunting behaviour and that these are unrelated to whether the cat is feeding hungry or not. So are there differences between your pet cat and the feral cat out in the yard or on the farm? Not surprisingly, feral cats spend twice as much time hunting, in fact up to 12 hours per day, than your pet cat and this difference can sometimes lead to pet cats exhibiting behaviour problems such as stalking and predating on their owners because they do not have the opportunity to hunt in the home environment. Cats appear to regularly use specific hunting locations where they have experienced a higher probability of encountering vulnerable prey. They move speedily between these locations, rarely if ever deviating to take up unanticipated hunting opportunities. This implies that during an active period of hunting, cats prioritise their already established strategies for catching prey, rather than discovery of new hunting sites or opportunity exploitation of unexpected hunting opportunities. Hunting opportunities are time sensitive due to the activity patterns of prey, but information about potential future hunting sites is available all time for the cats. So how do cats hunt? The short answer is by stealth, either by stalking their prey or sitting and waiting near the prey's den and then ambushing the unsuspecting creature. Obviously the method depends on the prey. Small mammals have dens from which they appear to forage or urinate and the cat, using its sense of smell and acute hearing, especially in the ultra high frequency range, which allows the cat to hear noises, scratching, digging, etc., can precisely locate its prey. It will then sit and wait for the prey to emerge into open space from its den where it can then pounce. Whilst waiting the cat will tend to keep a low profile and to paddle its rear feet up and down which is thought to prepare the muscles ready for that rush and pounce. As previously noted the success rate of attacks is quite low and if this is the case the cat will either return to cover or explore another site within its hunting area. Only if no other hunting opportunities arise will the cat actually leave this hunting area for another one. For more mobile prey such as birds which have no real shelter or hide locations, the cat must hunt by stalking using the cover of vegetation to move slowly closer to its prey. So what problems can be caused by the hunting behaviour? A cat which has restricted opportunities to hunt, for example by being kept indoors, especially at night when prey are going to be around, can develop problem behaviours. These problems can include stalking and attacking owners, or the mad dash around the room, which inevitably are problems for the owner, but not for the cat. The need to hone and maintain hunting skills must have an outlet, and the domestic cat in the home requires that the owner provide these opportunities 
by the good use of toys, for example, fishing rod toys, laser lights, if used correctly, to simulate hunting. A good use of empty cardboard tubes is to place a small piece of meat in them, tie it up at one end and drag them around for the cat to pounce on, kill and consume. So if you're keeping your cat indoors, not letting it out, you must provide these opportunities for your cat to stop frustration and to stop yourself from being the prey victim. Winter's upon us and with frigid temperatures, freezing weather, makes it all difficult for us to stay warm. So how do dogs stay warm in the winter? The amazing fur of dogs is one of the factors. The fur keeps their body heat from escaping. The top coat of their hair is known as the reflective layer. In cold weather, a dog's hair will stand up and trap the heat like a blanket to insulate the dog. In warm weather, the opposite happens to their fur. Additionally, a dog with two coats will shed the lower coat so that they can be a little cooler in the warmer months. Hair grows from the follicles in the inner layer of the skin, the dermis. In a person, each follicle has one hair. However, in a dog, the follicle sometimes can have as many as three or four growing from out of it. A dog relies on its fur to help regulate their own body temperature, depending on the temperature of the environment. Dogs shed their coat depending on the season. A dog's fur will grow within that season to a genetically predetermined length, and when it stops growing, the dog sheds its fur, and shedding occurs depending on the temperature and sunlight. The longer the days, the warmer the temperatures, a dog will shed the undercoat, so they can stay cooler as the weather gets warmer. When the shorter days and cooler temperatures begin to arrive, the dog sheds its lighter undercoat and grows its thicker winter coat. Most dogs have several types of fur. The undercoat, this is the layer of fur closest to the skin, and many hairs grow from one follicle. The undercoat is very soft and cottony-like, and this is the layer that protects the dog from the cold temperatures. The thickness of the undercoat varies with different dog breeds. Then there's guard hair, thicker and longer hairs than the undercoat, and this is the primary coat that protects the dog's skin from surface injuries and adds another layer of insulation against cold conditions. Then we have the specialised hairs, the whiskers, which come from the follicles on the eyelids of the muzzle area, and these hairs are more like sensory feelers that help the dog react to something their face has touched. Some dogs, water dogs, such as retrievers and Newfoundlands, have waterproof fur. They have a very active oil glands to their skin, which keeps the skin soft and supple and their fur smooth. It's important to take note of your dog's fur. If your dog's coat is dry, itchy and limp, it can be a sign of health problems, ranging from parasites to thyroid conditions, hormonal imbalances. If you're concerned, check with your vet. It may be a simple thing such as a change in diet that's required. There is a correlation between a dog's weight and their body temperature. In a recent study it was found that thin dogs are able to keep themselves warmer than heavier dogs. There's not too much known about the subject, but it's believed that there is a relationship between a dog being overweight and lower body temperatures. Larger dogs have a lower body temperature than smaller dogs. Obese canines can have a lower body temperature than thinner dogs. Warm-blooded mammals expend a great amount of energy to keep warm, so a dog with a lower body temperature is not using as much energy because their warmth needs are lower. In hot weather, dogs sweat through their paws and their tongues. This causes the dog to conserve moisture by carrying heat away from the hottest part of the interior of their body to the exterior part of their body, the skin. 
The brain is the most temperature sensitive organ. Their muscles are where most of the heat is generated and a dog's body is designed to protect itself from overheating in hot temperature. But what of the extremities? In cold temperatures, a dog's body protects itself through insulation. Their feet and legs have the most contact with snow. When people's extremities come into contact with the cold, our body shuts off blood supply to our hands and feet to protect our vital organs, and this can cause frostbite. With dogs, their body doesn't stop the blood supply to their feet and paws. A dog's body will run warm oxygen-carrying blood into the limb next to the cold, unoxygenated blood, leaving their limbs so there is no loss of heat in their extremities. This also prevents cold blood from returning to their body. It's not particularly well understood, but there is some kind of artery and vein heat circulation system that helps them survive in the cold weather. It's theorised that there may be a different kind of body fat in the dog's foot compared to the type of fat in the rest of the body, and that this helps contribute to keeping their feet warm. This fat may allow changes in the cell that help them tolerate lower temperatures and still be able to function. An awful lot more to be studied about this topic. Using electron microscopes, Japanese scientists have studied the internal workings of dog's paws. There's a network of veins which runs through and it manages to keep a constant temperature throughout the legs and paws. The closeness of the arteries to the vein allows heat to be transferred from one blood vessel to another and as the blood in their vein gets cold from contact with cold air and frozen ground, warm blood coming from the heart transfers the heat and warm blood gets returned to the body. This prevents the dog's temperature from cooling down while the paws stay at a constant temperature. Other animals have similar systems. Dolphins have this circulation system in their fins and penguins have it in their beaks, wings and legs. Arctic foxes have a thick and stiff fur on their paws which helps them keep the bottom of the paws from the cold ground. Their pads have connective tissue and fat that is resistant to freezing temperatures that can keep their tissues in their feet and paws warm at temperatures of minus 35 degrees. So when we look at the Dog breeds adapted for cold weather, we look at the Siberian Husky, Anatolian Shepherd Dogs, Norwegian Elkhounds, Akitas, the Mountain Dogs, the St. Bernard, the Great Swiss Mountain Dog, the Bernese Mountain Dogs, Alaskan Malamutes, Shiba Inus. All these breeds show that dogs have evolved to be better suited for cold weather than we humans. But then again, dogs do everything better than people do. That's all for this episode of Pets Behaving. If you'd like us to cover any particular issues or you have any queries or suggestions, please contact me at info at petsbehave.com. In the meantime, look after yourself, stay safe and enjoy your pets.